Hello, friends. In light of recent events, with Roe v. Wade and the abortion debate hitting our headlines once again and being on the forefront of everyone's mind, I thought I would re-release this conversation I had last year with Virginia Lindsay and Andrea Lipke on abortion, adoption, and Down syndrome. This is a two-part conversation, which I'll release over the next couple of days, and then we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming. But I hope you enjoy this and find it of some use to you during these troubled times. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Well, why don't we begin with actually with with how I've brought you both here onto this podcast. So welcome to the tent. We have begun our conversation. How it began, the simple version is that I read an article on in the Atlantic a couple months ago on Down's syndrome children and also on the how worldwide Down's babies are becoming extinct. I mean there's just no people are not really having Down's babies anymore largely due to testing and then abortion. And, and it was a really good article. It was very humane. It had lots of stories on all sides. And my first thought was, I really would love to talk to my friend Virginia about this because Virginia uh, also in the last few years has had a Down syndrome baby. And I, and I really admire her, her, uh, her wisdom on things. And I like to hear her voice on stuff. So I, I wrote a, an email. I was thinking of writing an email to Virginia about this. When at the same time, she wrote an email to me because Virginia is a friend of the Tent podcast. And she had been asking me about abortion and violence because we've been doing some stuff on violence. And she said, I think abortion and violence are two really big issues. And you haven't talked about that. You only talked about war. And uh, so there's this kind of email crossing where I was going to write to her and she was going to write to me. And so then I started talking with Virginia about this subject. And I was hesitant, not because I don't think abortion isn't important, but because I just don't know where to start with these things. And I'm scared of it. And Virginia and I batted a few ideas back and forth about how we might conduct a conversation. And then Virginia had the brainwave. She said, I'm going to, I want to talk to my friend, Andrea. I think we need to get Andrea in on this. Therefore, I am very happy to welcome Virginia Lindsay and Andrea Lipke to the program and we are going to talk about abortion and adoption and down syndrome and our experience of all these different things so the first thing i want to do is perhaps the way we always do with tent theology is uh uh find out a little bit about your stories so uh first of all let's get some voices in andrea can you say hello so we hear your voice hello my name is andrea lipke and i'm really pleased to be here and where are you calling in from, Andrea? I'm calling in from the eastern end of Long Island in okay. this beautiful state of New York. And you are an editor and a writer and an artist? I, I'm an editor and a writer, yeah. Okay. And Virginia, can we hear your voice? Hello. <laughs> nice to see you guys. And where are you calling in from, Virginia? I'm also coming calling in from uh, eastern Long Island, different town okay. than Andrea. Um, in Stony Brook, so. And, and you are an, an artist, a portrait painter. Um, yeah, I've been a makeup artist in fashion for 
the few decades and um, yeah, sort of pivoting to, to do more art now. Well, let's start with you, Virginia, because you're the first person that I knew in this in this conversation. Can you tell us a bit about where you came from? What was the when when you what sort of culture were you born into, and and what did people think about abortion and adoption and these kind of issues? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm originally from Alabama, so there's a lot of stuff you can infer right there. Um, I grew up in, I have a sort of a weird background. I initially grew up in the church that started the PCA denomination. So super Calvinist, super conservative. And PCA stands for, for our non-American listeners. The Presbyterian Church of America. Um, It's sort of the more conservative wing of the Presbyterian denomination. Mm -hmm. I also grew up charismatic Pentecostal. So I haven't really met very many uh, charismatic Presbyterians. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like, um, uh, yeah, so kind of weird background. I would say uh, as far as abortion goes, you know, kind of the classic uh, pro-life, politically um, pro-life in in the sense that we all know stereotypically, which is... I do think my parents were, you know, some, a lot of times when we talk about pro-life politics, you know, I think it is appropriate to say more pro-birth. I think we all know that a lot of the politicians and the ideology that comes with that Mm -hmm. is often not really that concerned with life after birth (laughs) politically. (laughs) Um, So was abortion uh, something people talked about? I mean, was it a, was abortion it like a, was definitely something people talked about? Like I would a hot say an issue. Yeah, yeah, I think I think more than I don't. I feel like my parents, particularly my dad, I was hearing a lot more about justice and taking care of people and loving people. Um, but as far as like, I went to a Christian school, that PCA school, definitely more talk about abortion and all those hot topics than like the kingdom of God or taking care of the poor or, you know, these things that are actually mentioned in scripture a lot more than abortion. (laughs) But we had, I remember when I was in high school, you know, there's that famous video, which actually it was Francis Schaeffer's son, I think. And my grandfather was good friends with Francis Schaeffer okay. and he was in apologetics. And I think he went, I think he was arrested a few times for protesting in front of abortion clinics. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, abortion was definitely like a no-no. And ha- did you have any contact with anyone from the other side? I'm using heavy air quotes here, side. Yeah, yeah. well, what's interesting and this isn't really my story to tell, but in a personal way, it's quite likely that I wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for abortion. So that's a little bit existential. That's not something, um, you know, I think is, was talked about much in my home, but it's enough that it's definitely something to consider. I didn't really, I certainly knew people who'd had abortions, you know, a number of people, uh, it's so common. No, I, I wouldn't say that like any of the pro-choice movement was ever considered. I think it was always vilified, always right. these people are murderers. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And we are going to get to where 
where you are now. But before that, I want to find out, Andrea, how can you tell us a bit about where you were born into? What kind of sure imagination did you have about this? Thing? Yeah, well, I um, was born in London, actually, and my mother was from Sweden and my father was a New Yorker and okay. my mother had been a Fulbright uh, scholar um, for a year at Cornell University in Ithaca and met my father and they fell in love. And so I, and we grew up moving every two or three years, kind of between England and all around the United States. And my mother was very, very Swedish in certain ways and that she was very stoic, very kind of, I think liberally minded until she became a born again Christian when she was 36. Okay. So my mom kind of set the moral tone for the family in a sense. My father was largely absent just because he was a business executive who was traveling the world and winning friends and influencing people and doing all that he did to support us and to kind of excise his own demons from his past. He was a drinker and a philanderer. But so my mother kind of set the moral tone. And when I, I guess she had me when she was 29. So I would have been six or seven when she became a believer. Okay. She was very respectful of my father's non-belief. So we didn't really necessarily go to church a lot. She spoke to us about Christ, mm -hmm. but we didn't have, I didn't have the full-on experience of kind of evangelical fundamentalism that Virginia did. Right. right. Also, because my mother was temperamentally liberal, I don't really remember hearing that much about abortion growing up. So you weren't a culture warrior. You weren't brought up to be a I not in that way. My right. mother did, however, get a lot more conservative as time went on. Right. Okay. Um, so I I wouldn't say that I thought a whole lot about abortion growing up. I mean, there's more to the story that we can get to later well, on. Shall we? Shall we continue? Uh, so what, what, tell us about well what happened. What I changed. when I was 19, I got pregnant. The last term of my freshman year in college and I it it is no small wonder that I got pregnant because I was quite promiscuous and I was on the horns of a dilemma in a sense not in that I considered keeping the child there was never a moment where I truly considered having the baby it was just completely out of the question like there was no way that I coming from the milieu that I did where you go to college or and or grad school and you become a professional and you have kids later in life. Mm. Um, I had never longed to be a mother. I would say that my maternal instinct came much later. Okay. However, I did consider myself a Christian, even though I was a Christian who slept around and experimented with drugs and drinking and kind of lived a, a very prodigal life in a sense. The big, the big question was, how do I go about doing it? I found out during finals yeah. and I couldn't do anything about it then. And so, and I didn't have money. So I called my uncle who I felt very allied, allied with and a friend to borrow money. It was $200, but I couldn't do it until I got back 
home okay. to New Jersey. And I couldn't do it immediately because my family was taking us all on a vacation after my brother graduated right. <laughs> from college. So there was this very pregnant time, yeah. no pun intended, yeah. where I knew what was happening and I felt really tormented by it. And were you completely alone? Were you the only one who knew you were pregnant? Did anyone else know? Apart from my uncle and my friend, no. Okay. Nobody knew. Okay. So it was this carrying this terrible secret as well. Yeah. When we got back from the holiday one night, a few nights before I was meant to have the abortion, my uncle called and said, you need to tell your parents mm -hmm. or you will, this secret will rot you out. Okay. And so I, I had to tell my parents and it was terrible mm. as it would be for anybody, but especially for a family that was really split down the middle with my father. My father immediately said, of course, you're getting an abortion. Mm -hmm. And my mother couldn't stop crying right. and pled with me not to. And my brother the next day, who was also identified very strongly as an evangelical Christian, went AWOL. He had just uh, become an officer in the Navy and he went off base to come to try to convince me. So on one wow. hand, I had my father pulling saying, you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. You're an idiot for getting pregnant, which was true. And on the other hand, I had my brother and my mother saying, please don't do it. We'll help you raise it. Mm -hmm. You can adopt, make an adoption plan for the child. Mm. And I ultimately, I was in torment and I, I went through with the abortion. Because raising a child just even with their help was just in not a thing that was going to happen. I, I couldn't, um, I could not yeah. fathom it. Yeah. yeah. There was nothing in me that felt like that would have been possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, this goes into this whole idea of not I there was a part of me that was really amazed that I could get pregnant right because I think there was this sense that I had of I was fully educated yeah. sex-wise my parents had told me the birds and the bees and I had read books and I had had sex education in public school and and still I was amazed yeah. and confused and befuddled at the fact that I actually conceived so that was my experience. And the fallout from then was basically, I walked away from my faith because my mother, I would say that the biggest part of walking away from my faith was the fact that my mother froze me out. Right. Not intentionally. She just had such a difficult time okay. and I think was truly fearful for my soul. Okay. And what I read was that she didn't love me anymore and that I was unacceptable. And how could I embrace a faith where I was rejected by my very mother? Yeah. So I ran away. I, not literally, but I mean, I, I ran away from faith mm -hmm. very, mm -hmm. very far, um, but came back to it many years later. So you, so a 19 year old had an abortion, mother froze you out of her life because she couldn't handle what you'd done feared for your soul. Where was your brother in all this or, and your father? What were they doing? My 
brother also definitely feared for my soul. But I mean, he was off in his own world. He was on a carrier in the Gulf. You know, he was, he was an officer in the Navy for four years and went to business school and got married. And, you know, he, we're very different temperamentally. Mm-hmm. We share a deep love for each other, but we're very different. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that I have always been temperamentally progressive. I, I actually think that these things tend to be temperamental, that right. whether you're a conservative or a progressive boils down oftentimes to temperament. And right. my temperament was always progressive yeah. and loving the arts and loving kooky people and story and, you know, narrative as a writer, that's my thing. So, but I was about your return to, or your experience with, with Christ then. Well, I I would say that I've always been Christ haunted. Okay. Even as I ran away from the faith, I was never able to call myself an atheist. I would say I was agnostic, but the, the truth of the matter was that I, never shook jesus Mm -hmm. how how could i shake jesus he was he was not the problem at all right Right. um but i i really started believing so i i was god haunted Mm. had always had felt acutely that that whole that kind of existential maw some people feel it more than others i've always felt it even as a child and I thought I really could fill that in with success mm-hmm. and with love. And success looked like ambition, moving to New York after graduating from university and mm-hmm. starting to climb the ladder in, in the New York arts and, and literary scene mm-hmm. and doing really, really well for myself. And meeting a wonderful man who was a filmmaker who was American but grew up in Switzerland and we had it got married and had a great loft and I was a columnist for the New York Times and mm-hmm. and at age 31 basically fell apart be, in a sense because of all of that I had been given all that I had thought would fill okay. me and it it was the literal you know ashes in my mouth it, it wasn't enough. Yeah. Once I had attained having a biweekly column in the New York Times, I realized that that meant nothing and that it would only mean something if I could be a contributor to the New Yorker. Yeah. Once I had yeah. a, meet, a lunch meeting with a New Yorker, I felt like this, this, what is going on? And I fell into a very deep, anxious depression and um, basically had a nervous breakdown and had to put aside my gig for the times and really and go on antidepressant medication and reconsider my life in a sense and even though i didn't think it was i knew it was an existential crisis and a psychological crisis i didn't realize it was a spiritual crisis okay um until about a year later and I was much more stable. I also had a much better relationship with my parents, especially Mm -hmm. my mother, because I had never been able to tell her how hurt I was and bereaved at her reaction and the distance between us and how angry. And 
when I was in free fall psychologically, I was able to tell her everything. And so we had a closer relationship. Mind you, she was Swedish, so there's only a certain way that you right. can go with Swedish. There's only some. Listen, there's I live in England right now, Andrea. You, you can, I, uh, well, I'm sure we could have a competition about emotional barriers. Trouble that. <laughs> trouble that. There's not only the fear of embarrassment, but, and of course, yeah, this right. goes into how wounded she was yeah. and from her past, et cetera. Um, did you so w- because you you sort of it's almost it almost sounds like you're saying you had nothing left to lose and so you just reached out what did i have to lose i yeah. i'd reached the point of perhaps either thinking that i needed to ch- check my myself into a psych ward or kill myself right what what was i afraid of yeah yeah and there was a lot of fear i okay. think the fear that had me moving into free fall was somehow this fear that I was unable to love. And I think that had to do in part with the abortion. Right. So basically what happened, the, my husband at the time was back in Switzerland in Geneva, seeing his mother. I was with my parents uh, for Thanksgiving and the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I was going through, I was up for a big job as the editorial director of a big magazine, and I didn't know if I could do it. And there was kind of a controversy going on because I was being hired above my old boss, et cetera. And I was going into uh, anxiety spiral and saying, you know, bemoaning to my mother that I, I didn't know why I couldn't get my act together. And she said, I know why you need Jesus. Hmm. And I said, I know you think I need Jesus, but Jesus is for you. Jesus is not for me. And then she looked at me and she said, what are you afraid of? And it was the best question she she could have asked because I had been feeling this tug, Mm -hmm. but I had been denying it because I was afraid of what my husband would think. He came from a very bohemian family who basically loathed any organized religion and thought it was all hogwash. Yeah. And how could I possibly admit to him that I had been God haunted when that was the very thing that he thought that he derided in my family, especially my mother and brother. Right. So I looked at my mom and said, I'm afraid of what Pierre is going to think. And she said, well, I understand that, but this is between you and God. And so I literally did a sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. I basically said, God, I don't know that I believe in you, but I, and I have tried a one to do it myself. I have really tried hard mm-hmm. and I can't, if you're there, let me know. And that, that was it. And literally had this sense that I had thrown this ball out into the air and that rather than falling back down or just hurtling into perpetuity, it was caught this Hmm. very real sense that it had been received and that it was real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, we do mystical experiences here as well. Well, so I I'm big into, I've had, I would say that, my most profound God experiences have been absolutely mystical in, um, in nature. Yeah. And I can't explain it, but things changed a lot 
Yeah. And I went home the next day with an avid desire to read the Bible and know God. But there was. What about Pierre? Well, I didn't tell him for about a month. Okay. Um, Because I didn't know how to tell him. Yeah. And when I did, I probably did it at the wrong time because we were back in Geneva for Christmas and we had just gone to an opera and we were going to bed and he was feeling amorous and I was dying inside. And all of a sudden it was two in the morning and I said, Pierre, I think I became a Christian last month. Right. And the bottom dropped out and it was the worst thing that I could possibly have ever done to 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 him in his eyes right he saw it as a personal assault he saw it as a repudiation of everything that he and his family stood for right he saw it as a psychological trick that my mother somehow played on me right it it was I could have said that I was a a crack whore and it would have elicited much more sympathy and understanding than me saying that I had become a Christ follower. Yeah. Um, And the, interestingly, the, one of the first reactions he said was, are you going to become a pro-lifer? Right. And I was like, I don't think so. That's not what it's about for me. Yeah. And we, we spent six years trying to work it out. Um very earnestly on both of our parts trying to work it out could he stay with me knowing that there is this huge divide between us that when I see a sunrise and he Mm -hmm. sees a sunrise that I might be thinking about something that he's not thinking about right um which I kind of didn't understand having grown up in a family where my mother believed my dad didn't believe Right. right I didn't I saw that it was a big deal but I didn't I was like, why would I have to think what you think of a sunrise anyway? Mm-hmm. But um, the biggest sticking point became, could we have children together? Because he feared that I would brainwash them. Right. And I maintained that I wouldn't brainwash them, but that just as he would be able to live out his values in front of this child and talk about what he believed, that I would have to be able to talk about what I believed. And he couldn't accept that. Right. And we separated for seven months to see whether we should move towards divorce or not. And and I felt very strongly that we needed to give it one last chance. So I moved back in after seven months and we were excited to be back together and to try to make it work. And we were going to try to start a family. At this point, I was 37. Mm-hmm. And one day we were walking to work and he had heard from a friend of his who had been who had been pregnant at age 40 that she got the amnio results and that there was something wrong with the baby mm-hmm. and she had made the excruciating decision to have an abortion and he just needs to make sure that i would do the same thing right i no actually i was 38 so i was twice as old as i was when i was i had gotten the abortion and i we were walking up sixth Avenue in in Manhattan and I was first so hurt that he would ask me to promise something like that, knowing how, how ambivalently I felt about 
abortion and how hurt I had been. And, and also when I said, well, like what, what kind of like anything, like a club foot, he was like anything. Hmm. He's like, especially downs. And I said, I can't do that. And that was ultimately the beginning of the end of our marriage. And so we divorced at when I was 38 and thinking that maybe I wasn't ever going to be able to have children. Yeah. Given the fact of my age and that I was at ground zero at that age. So it was the most painful six years of my life that kind of interim. But now you, you are, it's not the end of the story, but you are married and you have children. Can you tell us Andrew about where that, where, where are we up to now? How can us up to where we are now? Well, I, four years after divorcing, I met my husband, Ira, who was also divorced. He's eight years younger than I am. So I was 42 when we got married and he was 34. And we knew that we wanted a family. Um, actually, I met my husband the same night that I met Virginia. Okay. And her husband, Jeremy, and your cousin, Christopher, in fact, all yep. on the same night. It changed everything. And uh, Ira was eight years younger than me. So I was 41 or 42 at the time. And he was 34, 35. And we became really good friends for a year and then fell in love and basically dated for five months and then eloped to Brazil. Okay. We knew we wanted a family together. Virginia was there. She witnessed it. Six people on a beach. It was amazing. And... uh, we knew that we wanted a family, but also knew that I was pushing it uh, biologically. So we didn't want to get try to get pregnant immediately because we wanted to have time together, especially since we had a very short um, engagement period of one week. So we, when I was 45, we tried to get pregnant and it wasn't happening. And I, we didn't, I didn't believe that I needed to get pregnant. Right. you know, the conventional way or even the artificial way. Um, so we decided to adopt and went through the process of adopting through an agency outside of Philadelphia and were chosen by a young couple. She was 19 and we have this incredible daughter named Rai who was a life changer. And we also developed a relationship with the couple uh and two and a half years later they got pregnant again and still felt like they couldn't parent and so that is our son who we also we also went through the agency to adopt him mm-hmm. so we have soren who's five and a half and rye who's eight and i am forever grateful for these children and to the couple who found themselves in the situation of being pregnant and chose a different way than I had. And my son's name is Soren, by the way. I, I was thinking, how in the world can I interrupt this amazing story to go, I yeah. wrote a book about somebody named Soren. We know that. We know that. No, I, we're, we're, my husband studied philosophy and we both love Kierkegaard and my mother was Swedish. Of course. And we wanted to honor his, her, her Swedishness. Yeah. Yeah. And certain, certain, certain. certain. In Swedish, it's certain. Yeah. 
um, is a, as pan Scandinavian as it gets. So, but you do you use the O? Do you use the U? You know what? Nobody in this country would understand it. I so know it's leave just leave it off. You can't lumber that poor guy with an U. <laughs> <laughs> It's implied. <laughs> so t now, Andrew, tell me about um, abortion now. What is your what is your view about abortion now? And um, have you ever got involved in some of the the debates? So, I mean, you're if you're around Christians all the time, like how do you talk about it to other to other Christians? For years and years and years, I, you know, I I was in the art world, am in the art world. I'm a writer. In a fairly sophisticated group of people, uh, non-believers, I'm uh, in the secular world mostly, and in New York entirely. If you're in that world, it, you, you you are de facto pro-choice. Mm -hmm. And in the late '80s and '90s, there was a really strident, you know, culture war going on, mm -hmm. of course. And I would find myself drawing back not being able to claim either side being being i would never have said that i was pro-life even though abortion deserves a lot more attention in the immediate than i how do i say this i i hadn't owned my own story fully in order to make a stand mm -hmm. and now i feel years later that i have through great therapy through a lot of healing, through the redemption story of my own kids, through volunteering peer counseling at a pregnancy crisis center, other women who had gone through abortion and were having some mm -hmm. of the similar psychological and emotional and spiritual issues that I found I had, I kind of came out being able to say that I am pro-choice with the caveat that I think both sides have it entirely wrong. Right. I, I would not, they, both sides make it very abstract. Okay. And they miss everything. I would say that I, right. I believe that it is a woman's right to make that decision, that decision being very, very, very difficult and nuanced and having repercussions, whether they experience the repercussions or not, I do believe that for one, the body keeps the score. There's a spiritual wound that needs healing. Um, there's a relational wound that needs healing. And I think you can ask me, do I regret having an abortion? And I would say it's an impossible question to answer. Mm -hmm. I regret having been in the situation of having to make that choice. And I would say, I, there was no excuse. I was, I should have known better. I should have acted better. I didn't. And I have deep regrets around that. But do I wish that I had had a different life in terms of having had a child out of wedlock at age 19 and I I can't know what that would have been like, and I yeah. yeah I don't think it would have been a pretty picture. But neither was this a terribly pretty picture. I mean, it, the thing that about Hashem 
I'm, I'm having a hard time calling God God because God is so so much bigger and more mysterious than anything that I can ever name. Yeah, is that he, she, it weaves our story yeah. into something that yeah. can be life giving to others, and I've found that this experience has been very life giving to others. Yeah, and I do have a story about that that I can get back to, but. So in, in the interim between getting married and adopting, I volunteered to peer counsel women at okay. a crisis pregnancy center in New York. And this pregnancy center was based in the gospel. I didn't want to have anything to do with, with telling pe pe women that they should not have an abortion. Right. I wanted to peer counsel women who have had them. Mm -hmm. And so I did this and it was like getting thrown into the middle of the ocean. I'm a very type A ambitious person. So I, and I, and I think that maybe I missed my calling to be a therapist because I've had so much therapy in my life. I think at a certain point you think maybe I should just become a therapist and make money instead of spending money. I've sunk all this time into it. Um, so I, I had this young woman who was really smart and really hurt. She was in her mid twenties. She had been pregnant at age 16 and it had been really hard for her. And she was not a believer by any means. Yeah, I don't, she didn't have, I think she had a spiritual life but it was distinctly not Christian in nature. Um, yet she had gone to a Christian organization for help. Mm. And I counseled her, I think for like six months every week mm. and developed this really intimate, mm -hmm. safe space to share her pain and just witness it and walk through it with her. And she, I spoke to her yesterday. She said that it changed her life. She now has a child who's four years old. It turns out was born the same month and year that my child would have been born. And there's this very real sense that that in a similar way that um, Rye was born to a 19 year old who had made a different choice that somehow meeting this woman and counseling her at this point in time was a full circle for me because she was the same age as my child would have been. Again, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, so I find like I'm looking for these narratives, but it really mm -hmm. did kind of come up in this sense yeah. that we really changed each other's lives and, and I helped in her healing yeah. and she helped in my healing. And she is an ongoing part of my life and I'm really thankful to her. And interestingly, she, a month before COVID hit, went to the same organization to volunteer peer counseling because she wanted, as she said, to pay it forward. And then of course COVID mm -hmm. hit and she hasn't been able to do it. She's homeschooling her four-year-old <laughs> single-handedly. There are, I have more stories, but I, I think I should probably cede um, to Virginia at this point and I'm welcome to answer any questions. So we left you, Virginia, as a young girl in Alabama in 
I'm guessing the sort of culture that was exactly the sort of culture that Andrea's husband despised. The kinds of people that, that the kinds of people that Pierre was most scared Andrea would become. So what, where, where are you now? What, what, where did we get to? Uh, we left you at a teenager in Alabama, did we? Bring us up to speed. You made some different choices in your life. Yeah, I did. And actually, I have to say, Andrea is the godmother to my son who has Down syndrome, and I couldn't think of a better godmother for him. I call him the love bomb. <laughs> he has a love bomb. Actually, you're a love bomb too, Andrea. Yeah, so I feel like I personally evolved on this issue a lot, and, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about sort of the larger issue later. Uh, but just personally, yeah, so I grew up very kind of politically pro-life, not fully understanding the nuance of the argument. I don't think I was really educated in that way. When I was in college, there was a minute, I, I was like totally in the whole purity culture thing, didn't kiss a boy till I was 21. Actually, I think I bought into the purity culture, not because I was really, I mean, I thought the purity culture was good or whatever, but mainly because I really couldn't stand like toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Anytime a guy tried to even like put his arm around me immediately, I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I just didn't like, right. did not like to be dominated by men at all. Super, super bristly about that really fast uh but anyway when I was in college and the first guy I kissed ended up actually <laughs> having sex with him kind of um not not really it sort of just kind of happened accidentally it was kind of weird like I and I didn't I was not prepared at all like I had I didn't have a lot of sexual education obviously like no prior real experience and for a minute I thought oh I could be pregnant. And I remember thinking at the time, because I, I think too, I had learned a little bit about kind of the psychology of, you know, and I don't even know how much of this was based in real research, but there was enough knowledge that, you know, my thoughts as a mom would affect whatever you know, child was in my body. And so I immediately was not sure if I was or not, but was kind of like, oh man, like really trying to have nurturing thoughts. And and they were sincere, I wouldn't say. And, you know, and I told my mom and she was great. Right. And um, I ended up not being pregnant. So I didn't have to make that decision. But I think if I did have to make that decision, you know, my life would have taken a very different road. When I did, when I was ready to have children, and I had one miscarriage, which is also really common, um, prior to us getting pregnant, me and my husband. And um, our, I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, my daughter, Bea, and, and looking at the you know, the sonars or whatever, and, and thinking, oh my God, like, how could people, like, this is wrong to, to have an abortion. This is wrong. You know, this is a 
this is a, a person. But for you, in, in your experience, it was a gut, it was just this gut feeling. You weren't like politicizing it or intellectualizing it. Yeah. 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 And then, and then I, and I remember feeling like really torn do, cause I've never, I don't think that I've ever been really, when I grew up, when like was out of, of my cultural context, staunchly pro-life, staunchly pro-choice, not yeah it's such a nuanced, vague thing. And I think it, it does require a lot of seeing and attention and learning and getting outside of yourself and confronting a lot of your own mm-hmm. issues, a lot of your culture's issues. And that wasn't something that I felt like I had the brain space to do at that mm-hmm. time. And so um, when I was kind of more confronted it, with it when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was like, okay, well, I think abortion is wrong. I don't know what that means about whether it should be legal or not, but was kind of thinking maybe it should be, Mm -hmm. I don't know. As I started to think about the issue more then and sort of really take a look at it, honestly came to the conclusion that I don't think it should be illegal but I am, so I am pro-choice politically, but I am anti-abortion. I am, I would say, pro-life in the real sense right. that I, I, I believe in life and I believe in taking care of, of life, of creation of, of each other. And so I think if you, that opens up a whole nother can of worms because that goes beyond the abortion mm-hmm. issue. That's everything. And I didn't see the the people who were saying they were pro-life politically doing that at right. all. Not at all. I mean, such the opposite. Like, didn't care about the environment, didn't care about the poor. Then also thinking about this issue, if I'm anti-abortion, I have to look at this whole issue. How women who have abortions, it's not like they're like, yay, I'm excited to have an abortion. Right. How do like they've been put in a position. And I think, you know, that's something we can talk about later. Uh, this question of uh, nonviolence and how that yeah. plays into, yeah. you know, we hear a lot from Christians about nonviolence to babies. Well, what about nonviolence to women? So you, They're not talking about that were, as much. Were you crystallizing these feelings and thoughts uh, while you were having your daughter or after you'd had your daughter or? Kind of all, all, okay. all around. And then after, you know, it, and I'm sure I'll still evolve and change on this issue. And I hope I do because it's, um, it's not black and white. You can't yeah. be dualistic thinking about this. And that, I think, you know, that's where the, the pro-life pro-choice conversation is really broken. And I'm hoping that talks like this happen yeah. more often where things can be addressed more holistically and, and we can really see each other better. I think that's where to start. Like, how do we see each other? So we mentioned, we name checked that uh, Andrea is the godmother to your son. So bring us up to your son. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that was a whole other thing. And so abortion did end up touching my life in a real way. When I was pregnant with my second child, my son, I was 35. And so when you're 35, you're required to have the prenatal testing. I, I did not, I declined it with my daughter. I don't know. I cannot remember if, if I wasn't allowed to de- decline it 
with my son, but I think for some reason I just said, you know, okay, we'll just do it this time. And it ended up, he did have Down syndrome. Oh, I know what it was. I wasn't, it, it wasn't that I was required. We went in for a scan and they, the size of his neck looked thicker okay. and they thought this, he could have Down syndrome. Right. And then I said, okay, I'll do the test. I was even kind of conflicted about that, which is silly. There's no reason to be. I just was, I didn't feel like it would change right. my decision, but it's nice right. to know, you know, so you could prepare. So found out my son was going to have Down syndrome. I think with that, there's a, the death of an idea. So you go through a grieving process. I, my husband and I, where I felt like we were really connected on so many issues came to a point where we were totally on different pages. So for me, I, I, I couldn't consider an abortion. It just wasn't something that I, whether I'm a Christian or not, it just wasn't something that I felt like I could do. We had tried for this child. He, um, you know, we were in a family. We, what am I going to do? He's not good enough. Throw him away. Like, no, gross. I just felt really uncomfortable with that. And also thinking about too, for me, kind of an everyday life, even before I got pregnant with him, anti-discrimination and inclusion and diversity was really important to me. How could I say that those things fight for those things or talk about those things being important to me and then discriminate against my own son. That, that to me, I felt that felt sick to me, actually. I felt pretty strongly about that where my husband did not. And also he really, well, he was very upset about the diagnosis and he really wanted to consider an abortion. And we had, I mean, he would say, we didn't have a lot of talks about it. We did have a lot of talks about it, but I was put in a, I was put in an awkward situation because I'm carrying a child who's now, you know, over 20 yeah. weeks. So he can hear, he can, all these yeah. things, he can hear our t- conversations. He can feel my yeah. energy. And I am talking with his father who wants to consider right. kill- yeah. killing him. Right. <laughs> And so then I'm feeling vulnerable, like I have to protect my son. Am I going to have to choose between my husband and my son? Now, this paints my son, my husband in a bad light. This is true. I don't think it's his brightest moment. But at the same time, I have to say, like, he's a, a really wonderful person. He's a great dad. Don't hear the story and think there's nuance there as well. He had been, he had suffered depression for a very long time and was newly out of medication, doing really well. I think he had a real fear that, and legitimate, that this was going to throw him back into spirals of depression. And then how would that affect, would he make it? And also how would it affect our daughter? How would it affect our family? And could he function? you know, and that's, that's legitimate. And he was so grieved. And so I, we, I mean, there was just major, major, major division in our marriage and we're both Mm -hmm. Christians. I mean, so there, there wasn't a, a kind of religious, you know, divide. 
obviously we ended up having him. I don't know, and, and my husband would say this, in the end of the day, I don't think he knows the answer whether or not he could have actually gone through with an abortion right. or not. But I think he was really upset that it wasn't something I was going to consider seriously. I mean, I did listen to him and we did talk about it, but it was just, it, it was not in my brain space. And I think that was really, really upsetting for him. So Virginia, where is your husband now with this story? Um, he's in a very different place. It's still a place of growth and complication. And I think this journey for both of us will probably never end as journeys right. never end with any relationship anybody has. But it's pretty amazing to see how opening this door has changed both of us. And I think for my husband in particular, who has always kind of had more issues with this, he's become so much more open-minded and things, I think I would say before he, you know, he's two Ivy League degrees, very kind of on paper, very successful. These sorts of things matter or mattered a lot to him. And I think he was sad that he wouldn't share this with his son necessarily, but it's these kind of values at the same time were also killing him. I mean, he was constantly comparing himself to people suffered from depression and anxiety, and he still struggles with that, but it's pretty amazing to see how he's by saying yes to Phineas and allowing himself to be next to otherness, it's freeing him, I would say, from himself and this worldview that was really kind of crippling him. So I, it's just been a tremendous blessing. And he's an incredible father. I mean, he's an incredible father to both of our kids. And I think even when he does get sad about Phineas's diagnosis, he still picks up. He's there for him. He's such a good dad. I don't think there's regrets at all. We have hard days, but we have hard days with our other daughter who doesn't have Down syndrome too. And, you know, I would say the only time our son, things seem hard or sad is when we compare him to other children. And I think that's also true for the way my husband, when he would feel sad, when he would compare himself to other people. And obviously, you know, it's foolish to compare for a number of reasons, and we all can fall into that temptation. But it's pretty amazing to see in a way that's so crystal clear, the dangers of that and the pitfalls of that and how unnecessary it is and how how things are fine and good and happy when we don't do that it's just that when we do that's that's really the only time the sadness comes in other i would say it doesn't exist otherwise which is really interesting and then there's this other and and we can talk about this later too but kind of the classic thing is there is a culture surrounding down syndrome and there's a culture surrounding kind of the medical community approach this yeah, sort right. of thing. I mean, Down syndrome is the most common genetic disorder. That's what it's called. I, I don't even feel calling it 
comfortable calling it a disorder anymore, to be honest. But, you know, if that's what you want to call it, it's fine. It's mm-hmm. the most common one. I would say, I feel comfortable saying this, the medical community's approach to this issue, and we can see this because there is okay. the ratio of funding for research for people with Down syndrome is astonishingly low compared to the amount of people that, that have it and compared to the other amounts of funding that go towards other genetic disorders. So it's the most common genetic disorder with the least amount of research poured into it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, most of the funding goes to the genetic testing. And the answer has been, let's just get rid of these people. You know, I saw Andrea actually pointed to me the, the film Crip Camp, which is great. I really, really recommend it. But one of the things that struck me is at the very beginning, one of the the men who actually made the film, he has spina bifida, is talking to another person with a disability, and he says, you know, they're always looking for ways to kill us. And I think that's true. And I, and I, I even think it's true within, I know it's true, and it, it, within the progressive community. I will never forget, I was pregnant with Phineas, and Slate Magazine, which is, you know, a real progressive magazine and has a progressive readership, had done a story similar to the Atlantic story, not quite as nuanced, but addressing, because in Iceland, you know, 99% of people, of of people with Down syndrome are being aborted, 99%. So it's becoming extinct. So there was an article about that in Slate, and I piped up and, you know, this, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but at the time I was, and just was offering my opinion about the article as someone who was currently experiencing the whole prenatal stuff with this and I and I used the word eugenics and people freaked out freaked out it was the most common and uncommon in the whole thing they were like like I don't know hundreds and I have never felt more violence against me in my life and I was even like I'm a pregnant woman we're supposed to be supporting yeah. each other. And I felt gut punched over and over and over mm-hmm. again by these women who are all about civil rights and racial justice, but did not feel like someone with Down syndrome was worth, like this was even a conversation worth having. Seriously, it opened my eyes to gosh, so many things that, you know, other people who are not valued in society, you know, I'm a white middle-class woman who really hasn't felt a lot of that. And now I can touch that in a real way, you know, in a different way, but it's, it's, it's just crazy. (laughs) Virginia, Andrea, I'm going to draw this part of our conversation to a close. We have brought us up to the modern era, to the current age, and we are all now in one room. And what's going to happen is I'm going to end this particular episode, but we, I'm going to invite you back. Will you please come back for the following episode to continue talking about these things? And I, I would love to get you to talking and then sit back and see what happens when we have, uh, I know that you have so many things that you've you care about and know about and have experienced and so would love to continue this conversation can i please ask you to come back again for the next session 
On the condition that you provide a nice cuppa and some chocolate digestives. For your London, your London roots. We'll go back yes. to the English roots. Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. All right, friends. Cheerio, friends. See you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone. What would I say to somebody who's thinking of doing life uni? I would say come prepared to learn a lot in unconventional ways and meet people that will journey with you at the same pace. If you're a fan of the Tent Talks podcast, then you or someone you know might be interested in Life Uni. Life Uni is a course that I have become involved in over the last year or so, and it is one of the most exciting things I've done for a long time. You will learn things that you didn't think you needed to learn and stuff that will tie into your everyday life. The Life Unique course takes young people between the ages of 18 to 25 and offers them a whole life discipleship program. We combine following the way of Jesus with life skills such as money management, conflict resolution, working off the land, nutrition, health and other great topics. We eat together, we play together, and we even work together because the course includes options for internships, job shadowing, and volunteer opportunities for businesses and charities in the area. The course happens in the south of England, near Brighton. It begins at the end of September and runs for eight weeks, and registration is open now. Just go to lifeuni.co.uk for any more information you need. I've been telling my mum, I've been teaching my mum about a lot of the stuff that we've learned and she wishes that she had learned that when she was younger. Life Uni also offers open courses for anyone of any age or stage. These day-long seminars look at similar life skill subjects combined with following the way of Jesus. I would say if you want to invest into your future self, come to Life Uni. Come with an open heart and an open mind. Go to lifeuni.co.uk for more information.